Well, I hope you paid attention because we're going to sing that on Christmas Eve together. <laughs> that song was actually written and performed by an artist uh, named Andrew Peterson. And it's kind of funny because in our staff, um, John, Pastor John Hendrickson is a big Andrew Peterson fan. And so he's always suggesting Andrew Peterson songs whenever we do a service. Hey, this song would work out well. And sometimes we do them. Sometimes we, we don't. But uh, we came across this and Pastor John didn't even know it existed. So, uh, but uh, this was to make him happy today. But it's interesting because though that song is uh, not certainly traditional and it's not very singable really either, uh, it, it is a Christmas song. And as we've learned throughout this series from Matthew, Matthew's talking about he leads into the, the, the coming of Christ the, through the genealogy of Jesus and that it is a very significant part of why Christ came, the Christmas story. This is a very significant part, the genealogy that comes into it because it would have been especially important for the Jewish audience that Matthew was, was addressing at the time to be confirmed, to have confidence that Jesus came through the line of David, through this lineage that had been prophesied in so many different ways that the Messiah would come and that there were prophecies that came true, all came into fulfillment with the person of Christ, which is really why he is and could be the Messiah um, for all people. And so that as Matthew wrote uh, and, and led us to this place, we also have talked about this month how he seemed to go out of his way to highlight parts of the story that were scandalous or, or parts that were the most painful or the most uncomfortable to remember. And uh, this is true because Matthew chose to highlight the broken people in Jesus' lineage because they were the point of the story. He went way out of his way to point out that broken people and, and broken situations because he wanted his listeners to recognize the fact that Jesus' story is such good news. This is exactly why Jesus came. He came for broken people. In fact, he didn't only come for them, but as we've talked about through this series, he came from broken people, and we're going to continue to look at that today. So over the past few weeks, we've, we've maybe called attention to or highlighted some of the people that Matthew put in the genealogy, which wouldn't necessarily have needed to be there, but he chose to highlight them for a very particular reason. We talked about Judah and Tamar, and we talked about Rahab, but really, truthfully, we could be talking about people from your family tree or from my family tree because we all have scandalous stuff that has gone on in our uh, families. And if we weren't recording this today, I could tell you some doozies that came from my family of origin. I just happen to have too many people living close by and in proximity, and so many of you know them. And I'm sure that they're sitting somewhere talking about all of my dysfunction today as well, um, dysfunctional ways in my family. But that's the reality. Jesus, we could be telling the stories of our families or we could be telling my story or your story uh, because the truth is that's really what Christmas is all about. We're all sinners in need of a Savior and we're the point of the story. You and I are the reason why Jesus came and I, I hope this morning that that really hits your heart and has uh, driven home for you because God wanted it to be so clear that none of my standing, none of my standing before him is based on what I've done or what I haven't done. Nothing in my life or my standing before God has anything to do with this, but that everything in my life that I, gives me the right to stand before God or to enter his presence has happened as a result of my relationship with Jesus because of what Christ has done for me. 
and that if you get a hold of this, that you get a hold of Christmas. And we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to look at one more person in the genealogy who is most closely tied to Jesus. And we're going to look at uh, his life and his story, and that's the story of David. Would you pull out your outline this morning? I know it'll help you follow along. Some of the passages we talk about are in there today. You can open up your Bibles on some of the others that I'll let you know about, but I think it'll help give some, some framework for the day for you if you're able to follow along. And we're going to get started right at the top of your outline with Matthew chapter 1. It says this right in the beginning. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. So right off the bat, there it is. Jesus is the son of David, meaning he falls in the lineage of David, which means that Jesus is the great, 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 great grandson of Jesus. I think I got that right this morning. That's the truth. And it's important. It was important for the Jewish people to know that this, this is who, uh, uh, Jesus, where Jesus comes from. He's the, the great-grandson of David. And if, in fact, if you look at Matthew's gospel, and not only Matthew's gospels, but the other gospels as well, you'll see that Jesus is referred to as the son of David continually throughout uh, the gospels. It's, it's kind of a, a very important uh, recognition of who he is. Uh, very important that, that the Jewish people knew and that we know that Jesus is in the line of David. It's part of, uh, of the identity that God wanted us clearly to know about Jesus. So Matthew says this in the genealogy of David. And then uh, he goes through all the people that we've talked about over the last few weeks. And then it says this. It says, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. And then Matthew inserts this part that he didn't need to tell us about, but he chose to. And he said, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We talked about this a little bit on the first week, but would you underline that for just a moment there? Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This was completely unnecessary, completely unwarranted, um, but Matthew decided to highlight the point he was making by adding that phrase, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Basically saying to everyone, as we're walking down through the genealogy of Jesus, uh, David had an adulterous affair right here. We're, gonna, we're just going down through the line, and we're going to highlight this one thing. We want everybody to know that King David was an adulterer, and he had an affair. Just throwing that in for good measure, just right into the middle of the genealogy. You know, he could have just gone on and said, David was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of, but no, he throws that line right there in the middle. He could have said, David, the shepherd boy, if he wanted to call some special attention to David. He could have said, David, the skilled musician, or maybe even David, the psalm writer, because David wrote some incredible psalms. He could have said, David, the Goliath killer, or David, uh, the great friend and great brotherhood with Jonathan. He could have said that Jesus, or, or David was the great king and, and mighty warrior, but he didn't choose to say any of that. Instead, he chose to highlight David's greatest failure, that's what he chose to highlight in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, David's greatest point of sin. And he did that to point out why Jesus came and why the story of Christmas is such good news. And I want to tell you David's story this morning. I, I want you to uh, be able to follow along and understand it. It's not in your outline this morning fully. It is in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where eventually I'm going to read from. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, eventually I'm going to get there and you can follow along. If not, I'll be telling you the story so you can just listen as we walk through. But while you're getting there, let me give you kind of the setup. And if you're not familiar with, with the Bible or you've never really taken the Bible seriously, I hope this morning that this is this will help you maybe understand some things that will help you address the skepticism you might have about God's word 
that really may help you um, be able to figure things out about what you believe about Scripture. Because the story of David takes place 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. 3,000 years ago from where we are now, approximately, is when David lived. And so 1,000 years before Jesus, 3,000 years before us. And the Bible isn't just a book. Uh, The Bible is a collection of ancient manuscripts that tell one story after another over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years that really um, are all one story that point us to God. It's all God's story. So the story of David takes place a thousand years before the birth of Christ, and here's what happens. The Lord appears to the prophet Samuel, and he tells him he wants to anoint a new king over Israel. You might remember that Saul, who was the first king over Israel, was having some struggle. Saul had been disobedient to God. He had kind of started to look out for his own agenda, wasn't listening to the prophets, wasn't listening to the voice of God, was kind of blazing his own trail. And in the end, things got really ugly for Saul. So God says, long before Saul's end as king, he says to Samuel, I'm going to appoint a new king over Israel, and I want you to seek out this king, and I want you to anoint him king. So uh, God tells him, tells Samuel that this king will come from the house, the family of Jesse, in the town of Bethlehem. So if you thought that uh, the first time Bethlehem was mentioned in Scripture was at the birth of Jesus, um, it was actually mentioned a thousand years before, and this was the first time it was mentioned. It was mentioned when God told Samuel, you're going to go to the, the family of Jesse in Bethlehem, and from Jesse's house, I'm going to have you anoint the next king over Israel. So Samuel goes to Jesse's place, and he asks him to get his sons together. So Jesse brings his seven sons um, out, and he lines them all up, you know, probably tallest to the shortest. I don't know how that worked in their family, but Samuel goes down, and he looks at the first son, and he has all the first son attributes and qualities, and he's tall and, you know, good-looking and a leader and all those things, and Samuel's probably thinking, he's the firstborn. This is the one that God is going to have me anoint. And God speaks to Samuel and says, it's not him. He's not the first one. So Samuel moves on to the second son. Again, um, a lot of good qualities, and and, and Samuel thinks this will be it. God says, no, pass him by, and he moves on down the line with each son, just going down the line, and God says, no, no, no. And then, I think this is kind of funny. As I was reading through this, Samuel looks at Jesse after, and he says, do you have any more sons? (laughs) Like, uh, God told me to come here. It's going to be one of your sons, and it's not, God's not saying yes to any of these. I just thought it was a funny question. And Samuel's like, or, or at that time, Jesse says, well, yeah, I've got one more son, number eight, but he's out in the field with the sheep. He's about 12 years old, you know? Like, and they, Samuel said, well, will you please go get him? And so they went out into the field. And if you have a 12-year-old or you had one recently in your house, can you just picture this? Now, now David's role in this family, he's the number eight son, okay? So he's way down the pecking order. And he gets the job of being out in the field with the sheep, probably the last job, the last chore in the family that anybody wants to do, and it gets passed on down the line. And I have a 12-year-old son, so I just pictured this. You know, David comes in, he's been out there with sheep, and he's probably dirty from head to toe, just hanging out outside, uh, you know, rugged, kind of, you know, just, just doing what 12-year-olds do, entertaining himself in his own mind, and, and uh, probably comes in, I can see him all runny-nosed and ruddy and dirty, and, and uh, Samuel stands before him, and the Lord speaks directly to Samuel and says, this is the one, this is the one I want you to anoint as the next king of Israel. And in that moment, uh, Samuel anoints uh, David, this little sweaty, unbathed little guy, and he anoints him as the next king. And then the Bible says that Samuel, uh, uh, David goes back to tending his sheep until years later. Now I'm going to fast forward. I'm going to do a pretty significant fast forward here because of time this morning. But there's this incredible, miraculous series of events, and eventually David becomes the second king of Israel. It's through an 
You can read about it in 2 Samuel. I'd encourage you to read it. As a matter of fact, if you're looking for a new place to start in the Bible, uh, this year with Bible reading, why don't you start in Samuel? The story of David is a great story of God's faithfulness uh, in his life. So David becomes second king of Israel, and he is very successful. Now, part of this, you have to remember, David is in contrast to what Saul, how Saul ended. Saul was the first king of Israel, and it didn't go so well near the end. Saul had some great things happen in his life, but near the end, things were, were definitely going south. And so David comes in, and he's successful. God blesses him, not only in military things, but he's a man who basically leads his country, and he's like a worship leader for the entire nation of Israel, constantly pointing them back to God, always giving reverence and glory to God. And this is where the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. So God gave him great success, and I believe it's because David just kept pointing all the glory and all the honor back to God. There are stories in scripture that just give you an indication of not only the character of David, but, but the heart of worship that he had for his God, that it wasn't going to be thwarted. David was not going to be thwarted in, in his desire to give honor to God. So David's very successful. And one day, David's on top of the palace in his kingdom, and he sees this elaborate tent um, there in the city. And this tent um, is where they house the Ark of the Covenant. It was the... the uh, the place of meeting where the people of Israel, as they went through the desert, had kept the Ark of the Covenant, which was the present, represented the, the presence of God. The Ten Commandments were in there. Other things that represented God's faithfulness to Israel and his presence in the Ark of the Covenant, in this tent. David's thinking about this for a minute, even though it's a very nice tent. He's standing on his palace, and he's saying, why should God live in a tent? I want to build God a temple. I want to build a house for God that will be more beautiful than any other building that has ever been built. Um, and David gets excited about this, and he's got aspirations to do this. Um, but David decides that, that uh, at this point he's going to make plans, raise money, and he's going to get ready to build the most beautiful temple as a place of worship for God. But before he can get started to do this, Nathan the prophet now comes to David with some good news and then some not-so-good news as well. And that's where I'm going to start to read from you. This is not in your outline, but it's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. It says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. David, I took you from the pasture and from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Then God says to David, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. This is an amazing thing. I want you to think about this. 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus, Nathan tells David, David, I'm going to make you, your name great, like one of the greatest men. You'll be known as one of the greatest men who ever lived on the earth. I want to just take a little survey this morning. How many of you, before you came in this morning, before I started talking about King David, um, before we even got on this top topic, how many of you would say, I knew of King David, and I kind of knew a little bit of his story and what he did? How many of you would say that? I knew of David. Great. Most of you. Most of you. And uh, this is essentially what God promised. God promised that David would be known. And here we sit in a church 3,000 years later, and all of us have heard of King David. When I was on a, a couple, few years ago, I had the chance to go on a cruise, and we were on a cruise ship that had a big statue, you know, the Michelangelo statue of David that isn't so modest. Are you familiar? He's kind of there on, on natural, and this happened in the middle of this cruise ship. They had a big open area, and it was probably like 40 or 50 feet tall, and it was right where the elevators were, so as you went past certain floors, you kind of had to look away. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing. So, uh, but David was fully known on that cruise ship, and again, this is part of the reason why uh, he continues, continues to be known. But 3,000 years la later, all over the world, in many languages and in many different nations, people know of King David. 
And that's amazing. That was predicted 3,000 years ago when God said to David through the prophet, David, your name will be great. You will be among the greatest men who ever lived. And that's exactly what happened. So reading on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house before you. That means God's going to make your, uh, a generational name for you, that for generations to come, people will know you when he says establish a house for you. And when your days are over, you will rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body? I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. In other words, God's saying to David, David, you're not going to get to build the temple that you want to build. Your son Solomon's going to build the temple. And Solomon did build the temple. It was called Solomon's Temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, an incredible temple that Solomon built. And the Bible says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And this this is very important, this next part. This explains some of the dilemma that we have with God's judgment and God's love. Even back in the Old Testament, this is addressed. It says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by human beings, with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, he says, David, when you or your offspring or the people who follow after you disobey me and rebel against me, I'm going to punish them because I'm a good father and I don't want to let those, I I can't let those things go unnoticed. I have to punish them to help correct them. And then in, in verse 15, it says, but my love, my love will never be taken away from him. This is what he promises to David. David, my love will never be taken away from you. And as I, as I had taken it away from Saul, who I removed from before you, the Lord said, I removed Saul because of his disobedience. But he said, David, I'm going to punish you in the future when you or your offspring disobey, but I will, my love will never be removed from you. And in verse 16, which is in your outline, it says, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This was an unconditional promise to David. No, David, you're not going to build the temple, but your throne, your name, your family, your lineage will be established forever. And that's a promise. Now, I want you to hang on to that promise from God for just a few minutes. We're going to come back to that. Four chapters and really like four years later, David does something that would make most of us blush even today. David, the leader of of the known world at the time, the man after God's own heart, the writer of great music and poetry, David the righteous does the unthinkable thing. He's out on his terrace again on the top of his palace, and he's overlooking Israel in Jerusalem at that time, uh, and he's seeing it. And remember last time he was on the roof, he had thoughts towards God. What can I build for God to make his presence known? Well, at this particular time when he's on the roof, David sees a woman bathing. He notices a woman bathing on a rooftop, which wouldn't be uncommon. It may have been uncommon that she was doing that in daylight, but it wouldn't have been uncommon. That's where they went to bathe. It was a more private place at that time. And David inquires, who this woman is, and he finds out that it's the wife of one of his generals, Uriah. Uriah, who was not only a general to David, but the Bible says was also a good friend to David as well. And so David uh, sends for Uriah's wife, and they have an adulterous relationship together. And several weeks later, um, uh, Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant with his child. And it's complicated. David has a huge mess on his hands, So Uriah this whole time has been on the battlefield. He's out fighting for the kingdom, for Israel, and for David. 
So David, in a desperate attempt to cover over the sinful behavior, his own sinful behavior, and the mess that he's made, David sends for Uriah, and he tells him, hey, come home and rest for a little bit. I want you to come home and have some time with your wife. So Uriah obeys the order of his king. He comes home, uh, spends a little time with the king that day, but when David sends him home, Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah chooses to stay overnight outside of David's door, outside of David's gate of the palace, and not go home to his wife. And in the morning, David says, Uriah, why did you not go home to your wife? And of course, David wants Uriah to go home to his wife because then it will look as if the child is Uriah's child, that it wasn't fathered by David, and then every, his sin can be covered over again. But Uriah says to David, how can I go home and be with my wife when my men are out on the battlefield, when, when they're dying? Well, how good is it for me to go to the comforts of my own home? And so David says, okay, let me try this again. And the next day, he has more meetings with Uriah about the battle, and then he gets Uriah very drunk, the Bible says. They drink a lot together, and Uriah gets drunk, and now David says, surely I'll send him home to his wife, and then he'll be with his wife, and then everything will be okay. But David sends Uriah out again, and even drunk, Uriah chooses, I'm not going to dishonor my men. I'm going to stay at the palace, at the gate of the city. And so when David uh, discovers that a second night, Uriah has not gone home, and his plan is not working out, his plan of cover-up, his plan of deceit is not working out. It takes him to the next level of sin in his life. Then he has to come up with another level of uh, uh, ways to cover over his sin. So David, uh, knowing that he might be exposed, makes a move that uh, would even make Hollywood proud at this time. And he writes a note to one of his, his, his commander of this battle, which, which is named, who is named Joab. And he says to Joab, Joab, when Uriah returns, I want you to put Uriah and his men right out on the front line, and when the fighting gets to the place of the fiercest point, I want you to pull everybody else out. Just leave Uriah and his men out front so that Uriah will be slain. And uh, Joab doesn't understand this order because he knows David's respect for Uriah, but, but he also knows that David is his king and he needs to obey. The interesting part about this story is that when David writes that letter, he gives it to Uriah to take back to Joab. So Uriah gets to deliver his own death sentence, essentially, to the commander on the battlefield. So Uriah shows up. Um, uh, he gives the letter to Joab. Joab does exactly what King David had asked of him. He puts Uriah out front. And this is the interesting part of the story that I really wasn't aware of until I dug a little deeper. It just, uh, I, I dug a little deeper in scripture and realized that I'd always known that Uriah was killed in the battle that day, but what I didn't know that was was that Uriah was such a valiant warrior that the Bible actually says that Uriah and his men, even though everyone else had pulled back from the battle, that they fought so verac voraciously, voraciously, whatever, they fought so intensely that as they fought, they pushed the enemy, just Uriah and his men pushed the enemy all the way back to their city gates. And Uriah actually died by the arrow of an archer when he had pushed the enemy from the top of the city wall, when he had pushed the enemy all the way back, almost single-handedly with just he and his men. That shows you the courage and the commitment of Uriah. So here Uriah is fighting for Israel, fighting for David, and doing it with, you know, just giving his, everything he has for it, and he ends up giving his life for it. And so then um, word gets back to Bathsheba and David that Uriah has been killed in battle, and the Bible says that they both mourn, but at the end of the time of mourning, David takes Bathsheba into his home to be his wife, and life kind of goes on for a short time as if no one is any the wiser, as if nothing ever really happened. But the truth is God knew. God knew. And in addition to that, Joab knew. And Joab was David's commander, and he's serving his king. So it's interesting how our sin kind of sometimes just, it just spreads out, and we, we think it's covered up, but it's really still there having impact. 
And in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, 27, uh, it says that the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was evil. God saw the whole thing. God saw the righteousness and the faithfulness of Uriah, and he saw the cowardly, adulterous, murderous actions of David as well. And I don't claim to know how or if God makes decisions. Because when you think about it, if God is omniscient, I don't even know that he needs to make a decision about anything. You know, it might just be in God's mind. The Bible says his ways aren't our ways and his thoughts aren't our thoughts. So I don't claim to understand um, what God would think in any given moment. But if I were God, okay, in my finite ways, I would be rethinking this whole unconditional covenant with David's family about them ruling forever in Israel. I mean, after, um, I'd actually be thinking pretty seriously about maybe raising Uriah from the dead. I mean, Uriah seemed like a super honorable guy and in everything that he was doing. You know, if I were God looking down on David, the one who I had just made this promise to, I would just question, under these new circumstances, in light of his unrighteousness, is this a promise that I could go back on? I mean, is this a promise that maybe somebody else is better fit for this job? So then the Bible says that Nathan the prophet once again comes to David and he confronts David and he says, David, you've done evil and you've sinned in the eyes of God. And the Bible says that David went to the tabernacle and that he fell down on on the altar, before the altar of God, and that he confessed his sin. And it it says you can read about this in Psalm 51, and I want to encourage you to write that on your outline. Write Psalm 51, and if you get a chance to read Psalm 51, it probably in your Bible will say it right there at the top of the psalm, that this was a psalm of David written in in remorse and repentance when David realized the weight of his sin. And it's really a beautiful, it's a beautiful expression. It's a beautiful prayer in Psalm if you get the chance to reflect on it. Sometime it might become your prayer before God at some point. But it's interesting to see how it all ties together. This was David's writing when he went to the temple before the Lord after the prophet Nathan had come to him and said, David, you've done evil in God's sight. So David said, I've sinned before you, God. Not, he was, he did a good job of not saying, well, I made some wrong decisions and I'm trying to kind of get away from that. He said, no, God, I flat out have sinned and I need your forgiveness. So God decides, if God decides things again, God decides that he's going to forgive David of his sin, but God decides to humble him and to punish him. And I have to tell you, when you read on in scripture, God's discipline of David is absolutely brutal, but his promise to David remained because, and You see it over and over again in Scripture. God is always faithful to keep his promises, but David suffered. I mean, when you look at Scripture, it says the child of the affair between David and Bathsheba died. David's sons ended up turning on each other. David's favorite son murders his oldest son. And then David's general, Joab, you remember the one who was kind of caught in the whole thing? Joab ends up killing David's favorite son. Sin kind of comes around full circle sometimes. And the kingdom of Israel, Israel is split in two for a time. This is the first time the kingdom of Israel was split. It was a terrible and chaotic time for David and for the kingdom of, of Israel. But I have to tell you, in spite of all of that, 990 years later, a man in the line of David named Joseph with his pregnant wife, Mary, made their way to the city of Bethlehem, which by the first century was known as the city of... David, 
before it had just been known as Bethlehem a thousand years earlier, but by the time we got to the first century, Bethlehem was already recognized because remember God's promise to David was that his name would be made known. Bethlehem had become known as the city of David. And there she gave birth to the great, 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 great grandson of David, who was Jesus. Because God keeps his promises. Now you have to think about this. If you're Matthew the tax collector, if you're Matthew the friend of sinners, if you're Matthew the guy who knows he could never ever earn his way to God, that he would never ever have standing before God based on what he did or what he didn't do, and you're about to write this story, okay? You need an example. You're about to write this story of grace and forgiveness and redemption. You need an example of why Jesus needed to come so that we could have forgiveness, And if you're Matthew and you're thinking about this, you're thinking about how can I point people to what Jesus has done and why it was so important that Jesus came and did what he did, you're looking at the life of David and you're saying, it's perfect. This is a perfect example for me to use right in the beginning before I even tell the Christmas story. I'm going to use the story of David and I'm going to highlight the worst moment in David's life because I'm going to point out even David needed a savior. Even David needed someone to rescue him from his sin. It's such a beautiful thing. If you're Matthew, you're thinking, people know what David did. If God can forgive David, surely Matthew's thinking he can forgive me. And if God can forgive David, Matthew says people might actually believe that God could forgive them too. Because David's story highlights the truth that when God makes a promise to us, he never goes back on his word So as Matthew begins to write down the story of Christmas, the coming of the Messiah, as Matthew begins to write his name as the son of David, the savior of the world, he wanted the world to know that nothing, there was nothing, absolutely nothing that could keep them from God's love and God's forgiveness. And that there was nothing, absolutely nothing that would make God go back on his promise to forgive anyone who is willing to confess and ask for forgiveness. So just as God kept his promise to David, that's why you and I, know his name today. And in the same way, God would keep his promise to all the people that he sent his son Jesus to die for. So imagine as Matthew's going through this and he's thinking, David is a perfect example. We talked about this before as Matthew was writing the genealogy and pointing out these different people. He's probably laughing because he's thinking of his own failures and his own sin before God and his own unlikelihood to ever be worthy of what Jesus has done. Matthew understands grace on a level after he had just witnessed everything that Christ had done and he's penning his gospel. He had experienced and witnessed grace on a level that that probably uh, many people hadn't or, or didn't understand the full measure of because he was so close to Jesus and he knew what it meant to be forgiven. And he knew He knew that there there was nothing that he had done, that he was bankrupt when it came to him having standing before God. So he's probably laughing, thinking about this. And I want you to jump now. I'm going to jump to Luke chapter 2 because this is the other Christmas story. And the angel said it better than anyone in Luke chapter 2 where we find the Christmas story recorded. Now here's what the angel said. And I I want you to listen to what the angel said through different ears this morning. I want you to hear what the angel said through this new filter, this filter of what uh, God has done for us and how God is a God who keeps his promises to all of us, all right? This is what he said. I think it starts in 2.9, but I'm going to jump into 2.10. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all the people. 
I'm bringing some incredible news and it's going to be for all the people. It's not just going to be for the Jewish people. It's not just going to be for the first century people. I'm bringing some incredible news. I'm about to write it here. Some incredible news that's going to be for all the people. Now, Angel, how can this be good news for all the people? How do you know that? Because it's God and he's making a promise to everyone. God is making a promise to the good people. He's making a promise to the bad people. He's making a promise to the in-between people. He's making a promise to the people that think that they're better than other people. He's making a promise to the people that think they don't have a chance. God's making a promise to the people at daybreak a couple thousand years from now who are going to think that if they attend church regularly and maybe if they read the Bible and if they try to do all the right things and they give occasionally and maybe they come and serve at the church that maybe somehow that's going to earn them right standing with him. God's making a promise to, to the people who think that way. He's making a promise to the people who are looking at the righteous people thinking, I'll never be like them, so there's no way I could ever earn it or deserve it. There is no way I'm ever gonna earn God's favor. And God says, through the angel, he says, I have good news for all the people. God is making a promise to all the people. How do we know? How do we know? Look at Luke chapter two, verse 11. He says, today, in the town of who? In the town of David. And I hope every time you hear the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, from here on out, I hope you think about this every time. When you hear it from this platform, if you hear it from kids' plays, if you watch Charlie Brown and you hear Linus recite it one more time, I hope that every time you hear today, in the town of David, you'll be reminded of the promise that God made to David and the promise that he makes to each of us. That today in the town of David, to David the promise breaker, to David the unfaithful, to David who leveraged his power for personal gain, to David who wrecked his own family, to David who had a man put to death, in the town of David, look at these next two words, you can circle them, a savior, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, he's the Lord. Skip to verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. You can circle that or underline it. On earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So God promised you and he promised me peace. But there's only one way for us to have peace with God. There's only one way for us to have peace with God and that's to remove the obstacle to our peace and that's our sin. And the reason that you and I don't have peace with God is that we continue to negotiate our sin before God. We say things like, God, I'm not that bad, or God, I can do better, or I promise, or God, I was only 18, and I don't know, or God, my mom, or God, I was raised in a bad home, or God, I was raised in a good home, and God, if you do this, I'll do that. And our whole interaction with God is we negotiate, we negotiate, we negotiate, and we promise. And God, we say, I know I've never been, but this next week I promise I will, or God, I promise I'm going to start. But the truth is, you will never have peace with God as long as you negotiate your sin. The only way for you to have peace with God is for your sin to be removed. When I was in college, um, I've shared this story once before, but it's so fitting this morning. My roommate and I were out back, and we were hitting some golf balls out back of our dorm, and there was a pond a couple hundred yards off, and the goal was to get it in the pond, or if it was a good day, maybe we'd drive it over the pond, and uh, we're out there doing this, and there's a family that starts to walk by, a mom and dad and two kids, and we wait for quite a while till we think that they're kind of out of the way, and then I, he looked at me like, should we resume? And I said, sure, and so he stepped up to hit the next golf ball, and we'll point out that he hit the next golf ball, and when he hit it, it just kind of, it just cut 
in a direction that you never thought it would go. And it, like everything went into slow motion, and we watched this golf ball go down about 100 yards on a drive, and we were yelling, and the family turned around, and it hit the little boy right in the forehead, kind of knocked him down off his feet. And we spent uh, the next, and interestingly enough, our first response was to duck behind a close vehicle because we were so like, ashamed and embarrassed. And then we both jumped up and ran to help them. And we spent the afternoon in Stevens County Hospital down in Georgia. And I remember um, the grace of this father with us. Um, he was a guy who had had another profession and was returning to school to be trained in ministry. And so um, anyway, he was just so gracious with us, comforting us and saying, it's okay, it's going to be all right. But we were really concerned that the life of this child was going to be changed forever. I mean, talking about some pretty serious head trauma. And so um, I remember throughout that afternoon, weird things come to your mind when you're in the middle of feeling bad or about your own behavior or some action that you've been a part of. And I remember like kind of bartering with God, like, God, if you'll just help this boy get through this, I mean, if he can just be, come out of this and be normal, you know, God, I'll do this or I promise or whatever. Not that any of that was a part of my theology. It just was in my mind. I'm just like, man, I've, anything, God, to make this situation better, anything to undo what I've done or what I've been a part of. But I remember in that moment, the only thing it turns out in the end, the boy was fine by the grace of God. Miraculously, he had some plastic surgery to repair the giant dent in his forehead, but, but he was fine. But I remember the only thing that got me through that afternoon was that that father was so, he gave so much grace to us that he was able to say, it's okay. This isn't, I don't hold this against you. I don't count this against you. My son is going to be all right, and we're going to trust, you know, we're going to trust God with whatever happens. You'll never have peace with God as long as you're negotiating your sin. The only way is for you to be absolved of your sin or for your sin to be removed. And here's the message of Christmas, the promise of God. Jesus came to remove your sins so that you could have peace. And don't start thinking about how bad you are. And don't start thinking about that or I'll tell you the story of David all over again with all the ugly details in it. Or we'll go back to the story of Rahab or Tamar. Don't start thinking that way. Because you might be a Christian this morning and you still don't have peace with God because you're still negotiating your relationship with him through the filter of your own failures or your own promises or your own sin. And you can't have peace with God you can't have the promise of Christmas until the barrier to that peace is removed. And that's your sin. And the promise of Christmas is that God sent Jesus into the world to remove our sin once and for all so that we don't have to even think about our standing before God based on what we have or haven't done. But we can only think about our standing before God based on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And Matthew, had ex- who had experienced all that firsthand, Matthew, as he reviewed the Old Testament history of all these people that he wrote into the genealogy, realized this is what God has been doing all along. This was God's plan from the beginning of time, and it continues to be his plan, that we had a sin problem and that a Savior would be needed and that he would send his son Jesus to answer that problem and that this new covenant that was going to be initiated was not through the blood of two parties like most covenants were made at that time, but it was through the blood of one party, Because just as the promise of David was unconditional by God, the promise to you and the promise to me is unconditional as well. You have peace with God in spite of you. Only one party needed to shed blood. And I can have peace with God in spite of me. I heard a story of a Catholic priest who knew that a woman in his parish was having visions of Jesus. And so in the church, often 
the line between someone experiencing something supernatural and someone being a little crazy is often a thin line. And so the priest wanted to find out, is this legitimate? So he invited the woman into his office and he said, I understand you're having visions of Jesus. She said, yes. He said, I understand Jesus is speaking to you in these visions. She said, yes. He said, okay, the next time you have a vision of Jesus, I want you to ask Jesus, what were the sins that I confessed at my last confession? And the woman's eyes got big and she said, she said to her priest, she said, you want me to ask Jesus about your sin and the specific sin that you confessed? And he said, yes. And so the woman went away and said, okay. And she made contact with him a few days later and said she had had a vision and talked to Jesus. And the priest came rushing to her because he wanted to hear, what did she have to say? And he said, tell me, what did Jesus tell you about my sin? And the woman looked at him and she said, Jesus said he forgot. He forgot because you confessed it. Very powerful. Through Jesus, God makes a new promise to us. A covenant between him and all of us. And it says it in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it's by grace that we have been saved. A perfect loving God created us. We sinned against him. He makes a new promise to us through the blood of his own son, a promise that says, I love you and I'm rich in mercy and I want you to have new life in Jesus and I want you to experience my grace. And this morning, if you say, Rick, that's hard for me to embrace because it seems so one-sided, it seems so unfair, it sounds so one-sided towards me. You're right, it is. And you get it this morning if that's what you're thinking. And if you say, you have no idea of what I've done and I'm not a good person and it seems like I'm getting the better end of this deal, You are, and you understand it well this morning, if that's what you're feeling. And if you say, well, if it's just as simple as that, then what happens when I go off and sin today? You know, sin always has a consequence. It did in the life of David, but it didn't negate the promise of God for David either. And it really isn't about that. This is about God offering you peace, peace with him. Can you have peace with God? And the answer is yes. But listen, as long as you're trying to negotiate your sin on this front, you will never have peace with God. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, as long as you negotiate your sin at that spot, you'll never know peace with God. As soon as you can recalibrate and understand your sin through this lens, you can receive the gift of Christmas and you can have peace with God because it's all about what Christ has done for us. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask you this morning, have you put this away forever? Are you still coming to God this morning with the past weekend in mind, with the past 10 minutes in mind, with your goodness or your failure? Are you somehow still negotiating with God? Or have you put it away once and for all? Because you're never going to have peace until you do. And I'll tell you something else this morning. As long as you're still negotiating with God about your sin, you're going to have the tendency to be dragged back into that same sin over and over again because you've come to the place where you're working, trying to work your way out of it. And it just doesn't work like that. That whole system is bankrupt. But the promise of Christmas is peace for all mankind, but only for those who are willing to receive God's gift. The price of peace is the price of your Savior's life. 
And I want to ask you this morning, have you made that exchange? Have you accepted that gift from God and received his peace? If you haven't, I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. And I'm going to, in a moment, invite all of us to pray a prayer together out loud this morning, whether you're a Christian or you're still figuring it all out. This is a good prayer for anyone who wants to open up their heart to God this morning. And it's on the back of your outline, but it's also up on the screen. So I'm going to ask if you just lift your head for a moment. And let's pray this prayer out loud together. Heavenly Father, I believe that you are the great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you'll keep your promise to me to forgive me, to accept me, and to love me. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis of what I have or haven't done. Instead, I will come boldly to you because of what you've done for me through Christ Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.
You know, the truth uh, about God's grace is so, I think it's so incredible that when we try to take time to kind of focus it all in like we did this morning, when we try to embrace uh, the fullness of what God has done for us through Jesus um, versus what we try to do on our own, sometimes it causes us to have to recalibrate a little bit. Like we have to think my direction was wrong. I was leaning way, way too far over here. And God, this morning, I kind of want to get my focus clear again and bring, come back to a place where I know that my foundation is on who Christ is and what he's done for me. That causes us to not only have peace with God, but to bring us back into right relationship with God in a, in a way that we know how to relate with him every day, that we're thankful for his grace and his, his mercy, his covenant, his promise to us, and that we can experience Christmas. And I think the peace that we can experience this Christmas could be different than maybe what we've experienced for a while if we can get our arms around the grace of God. So I want to ask you as you respond this morning, we're just going to take a couple minutes, a moment or two and respond, and then we're going to sing a final song, and that'll be all this morning. But I want to ask you to take your response card out for just a moment. And if God spoke to you, maybe it was for the first time this morning, you said, man, I've been banking on this, and that's getting me nowhere, and I want to put my trust in Christ this morning. You might want to write that down. Maybe if you're a Christian who needed, needed to recalibrate a bit this morning and refocus, maybe you want to write that down. Or if you're here and you have a prayer request, something that's just weighing heavy on you in your life, uh, we'd love to pray for you and with you uh, this morning. And our prayer team is waiting it's outside down the hall in the next uh, few moments. If anybody wants to be prayed for, you can do that as well. But let's take a couple minutes. And what God spoke to your heart this morning, maybe you just want to write it down and seal it between you and the Lord. And uh, then we're going to wrap up in worship together this morning. Let's take these next couple minutes, these sacred moments before the Lord, and respond to him 